You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Morning, church. I'm reading to you from Luke chapter 13 and verses 1 to 9. Uh, You'll find it in your handout there. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome, everyone. Uh, for those who haven't met me, my name is Daniel. Uh, it's a pleasure to bring you the word here on this nice first Sunday, or yeah, first Sunday at church anyway for 2024. Um, I've been at Sydney Hill since pretty much it started at West, and um, it's going great. And then my lovely wife, Hannah, and three daughters, Vidal, Aster, and Sabra, who are seven, nearly five, and two and a half. So a bit about me, um, I grew up in a 50-50 uh, Christian household, so one parent followed Jesus and one didn't, which made for an interesting um, faith journey. So I was raised in West Meadows, near Broad Meadows, but I thankfully grew up going to church with my dad, um, And but it wasn't really until early adulthood, uh, after some sinful choices, um, that I really came to understand God's grace on a sinner like myself. And so the fun fact was that the first time I experienced that grace wasn't at a camp or a church or worship night, but on the toilet doing number twos. So that was, yeah, where I God met me, which for those who know me, is probably like a reasonable place for me to be. So um, last year, Pastor Luke asked me to preach um, on his parables, and so it's my first time up here. So just be with me, a bit of grace, and I would love some interaction and some nodding, and yep, all right, we're on the right track here. Um, and so as I was thinking what parable to do, um, ask God, oh, what do you want me to tell your people in the 2024, and I was looking through the passages and it brought my mind back to uh, January 2020 or zero BC before COVID. And a lot of like the Instagram pastors and your popular sort of YouTube pastors all had the same message. I don't know if they co- coordinated it, but it was all how to see, um, how to have 2020 vision in 2020, how to, you know, how to see God's blessing in 2020, be blessed by seeing God in 2020 or something like that. Um, but as we know, a few months later, the world changed, COVID hit, lockdowns, um, many millions dead around the world, isolation, businesses closed down. Um, and these sermons kind of sort of didn't really, um, sort of paled off into insignificance and, um, were just kind of a usual prosperity gospel 
um, drivel rather than how to really see God's blessing through really tough times, which is what happened. And so I thought, what uh, message do we need to hear that can apply to both sinner and person saved all the time, um, something that wouldn't be sort of get knocked off by um, the winds of change in the world. And so as I was flicking through, I saw, came to there, Luke 13, 1 verse 9, repent or perish. And I thought, thank you, God. That looks like a good passage. And so we're going to look at that today. And it's a confronting passage in some ways, um, but this world is a confronting world. It's a pretty serious place, as we know, what's been happening over the last few months. And so hopefully this is a serious but um, comforting word to get us on the right path this year. So I'll pray and then we'll get into verse 1. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this moment and I pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, Lord, and that it will um, bless, encourage um, everyone here today. Um, open everyone's hearts with your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, just a little bit of background um, on um, some of the key events in this chapter. So Pontius Pilate, he was a real figure. He was the governor of Judea from AD 26 to 36. Ancient historians Josephus and Philo write about him and they present him as a bit of a cruel tyrant who was merciless to the Jews. The gospel accounts portray him more so as a um, self-serving and weak leader. Um, but this account here is only recorded in Luke but it does fit in with exactly what we know of um, Pilate to be a merciless tyrant, especially persecuting the Jews. And so what's most, most likely happened here is as the Galilean Jew, Jews have come up to worship at the temple, Pilate being Pilate just said, saw the animals being sacrificed and said, you can go in there too, and has had them killed with the animals and the blood, and it says they're mixed together. And it's a horrible incident. Um, if you can imagine God's temple as a place of life, and worship and praise and happiness, this human sacrifice does not belong there. And so a reason maybe it wasn't recorded is just because this was a normal event in ancient Rome. It's kind of like recording a fight in Broadmeadows or Sunshine or St. Albans or something like that. It's just, you know, normal event. Doesn't get, might get on the news, but then everyone forgets about it pretty quickly. So, um, and same with the Tower of Siloam. This was um, a real place. Josephus writes about this in one of his books. And so this is to reinforce us that the Gospels are... Um, you know, reliable historical documents and it will serve us well to, um, today to listen to them and to take in what they have to say. And so let's look at verse 1 and 2 now. Uh, if you're taking notes or you've got a heading, the first um, note is called, Whose Fault Is It Anyway? So earlier in chapter 12, it says this, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. And so this moment in chapter 13, Jesus is a big crowd with him um, and some have told him about this news this incident with Pilate and the blood. I'm not told why they tell him this, but we can see that Jesus answers their statement with a question, and which kind of tells us what they wanted to know. And it's an age-old sort of question, really, isn't it? When we as humans suffer terrible tragedy, uh, does this mean that we're worse sinners than people who haven't yet? And so this question has a big presupposition in that it relies on the fact that there is a God who judges sin. If you're an atheist, this question won't bother you. Um, your suffering is as meaningless as you are. And if you don't um, believe in God, and then suffering is just a part of life that can't be ignored. You just have to shrug your shoulders and move on um, when terrible tragedies occur, if you're being honest with yourself. And so, but obviously, this is not the experience of most people, even atheists and people who don't believe in God. The human heart needs to make sense of all these things in our life. When tragedy strikes, 
and the tears fall, the anger rises up, big questions of why are the most common things on our lips. And for first century Jews, they thought they had the answer. So John 9 verse 2 says, And as he went away, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? So it was common among first century Jews to believe that physical affliction was caused by your sin or someone in your family. But as you can see, this belief in this sense, this belief of the why of suffering, um, human experience doesn't really tell us that this is the truth. It's far too simple an answer. And just imagine if it was true. Imagine if you did have suffering in your life and you managed to clean your life up and you went back to church or worshipped God at the temple. What happens if your life and suffering stayed the same and didn't get any better? How would that make you feel? And what happens if the opposite happened? What happens if you decided to try and clean yourself up and things got magically better somehow? How would that make you feel? How would you feel then? See, both outcomes here can only be described as slavery and bondage, really. Um, Trying to work your way up to be good enough for God, for him to maybe relieve your suffering, only for that suffering to continue just leads to a life of misery and bitterness and despair. Or for somehow, for you to work up, you know, and do something, change your life and, you know, try and be good for God and somehow it gets better, what does that lead to? Pride, right? You worked hard and things got better. You know, imagine trying to tell someone who else's life was hard and yours somehow magically got better um, that, oh, come on, mate, like, just follow these five steps that I followed. That'll make your life better. I've, I've got these tips. You can do it. Get yourself better. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Um, you can have your best life now. You see, slavery and bondage is both despair and pride. But we believe in a God who sets captives free. Amen? Amen. All right, Jesus' answer is emphatic. In verse 3, he says, no, but with a but. As Bruce Larson in his commentary states, life in the kingdom is not fair. Jesus puts to rest here once and for all that the notion that sin causes suffering. God never sends suffering. Suffering comes as a result of living in a broken, fallen world. Life is not fair. Nobody said it was. If you understand that, you don't whine when hard things come, and you're not smug when everything goes your way. Now, perhaps that sounds a bit fatalistic, but there's good news there. You see, the good news here today for all of us is that Jesus, the King of the universe, is telling you that when you encounter the horrors of this world, it's not due to the fact that God is punishing you as a worse sinner than someone who hasn't gone through those horrors. That's the truth, okay? Take that home with you today and just think about that. And when that time comes, you can hold on to that. But Jesus' answer comes with a but, meaning he wants us to learn more about what he has to say um, say next. So the next title here, the next point is repent or perish. And he goes on to say this, no, I tell you the truth, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He then proceeds to tell a similar sort of tragic story about a tower that fell and killed 18 people and his answer is the same. So as he often does, Jesus offers a glimpse into true reality here. Tragedy and brokenness in this fallen world is but a picture. It's a foretaste of the ultimate judgment of God on the day of the Lord when all who haven't repented and turned to him will perish forever. So this raises a few questions then, doesn't it? So I'll try to answer them before moving on to the fig tree. What does it mean to repent? And why, why do I need to do it? So I did a bit of a word study on the word repent here, and hopefully I pronounce it right, but metanoeo is the Greek word used here. 
So if you break it down into its two parts, it's quite easy to understand. So meta equals change, like in metamorphosis, to change form or change shape. And noeo means to perceive with your mind or to have understanding, to consider or ponder. And so to put them together, it's quite easy. Um, to repent the way Jesus says is to change one's life based on a complete change of attitude and thought concerning sin and righteousness. And so one way I've experienced that in my own uh, life is a struggle with um, a lot of men go through these days with pornography. Before walking with Jesus seriously as a young man, your typical men's magazine, this is back probably pre-smartphone days, but your typical sort of men's magazine and stuff like that you see around was alluring and attractive. But God one day convicted me, convicted me of my sin and gave me into a revelation into what I was seeing. You see, when God changes your mind, you actually see like what you can see is not actually what you're seeing. And when God changes your mind, you see what's actually there. And so I wasn't looking at alluring pictures of women. I was taking part in a system that abuses and disrespects women, women made in the image of God. And something that turns sex into a gift between two uh, married people um, to share intimately into a disgusting, cheap, disposable commodity. It wasn't alluring anymore. I was changed to see it as a vile, disgusting thing and an affront to God who made something so beautiful. And so I had to be convicted, needed to say sorry to God for this and to ask him to see for what it truly was. And God changed my mind based on his truth. And since then, it's never had that hold as it did before I saw that. And so to truly repent, you must change how you think about everything in relation to the teachings of Jesus and how you relate to them. So saying sorry isn't enough or feeling sorry isn't enough. You know, we see here from the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup when he was hungry. And later on, he realized the mistake he's made and he went back to Jacob asking for that birthright back that he'd sold. And he felt terrible that he wouldn't get his father's blessing anymore. And Hebrews 12, 17 says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he had found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Esau's crying here. He wants, he feels bad. He feels sorry. But Esau was just sorry for himself, not to God. You see, you contrast this with King David and his response to sin. King David was the greatest of all the kings in Israel, a man after God's own heart. But even him, for a time, let his uh, mind and lusts wander and he committed adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and then had Uriah killed to cover up the pregnancy. And so the prophet Nathan comes along and tells him a story about a man with lots of sheep, a rich man with many sheep. And he steals a poor man's little only lamb that he loved so much. David rightly is furious in this story. He wants the rich man dead or punished. And what does Nathan say? What are the immortal words that Nathan says? You are that man. You are that man. David here through God's words delivered by the prophet, he's convicted of his sin and he repents before God and he writes what's known as Psalm 51. And so you can go read that this week um, in your, in your um, quiet time. But this is what true repentance looks like and some of the highlights of that psalm are, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you, no one else against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Creating me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, this is what a changed heart before God looks like. He knows what he's done and he knows what he needs afterwards. But why do we need to repent? Are we that bad in here? Are we really as bad as David in here? Like we didn't, no one's killed anyone in here, I hope. Are we decent people who God can accept? You see, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians doesn't just say that we're sinners, but we're actually dead in sin. It says here in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and by nature, children of wrath. And so what's the only option here? God needs to step in, right? The first part here in Ephesians 2 gives a really grim picture of our state before God, right? One, you're dead. You're following Satan, children of wrath, destined for judgment and an eternity without God in hell. But, the but, the next part of Ephesians 2 is what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the but of hope. He says this, but if you realize the truth about your, about your vile and sinful, foul nature, that you were born in sin and shaping in iniquity, if you really understand what that means, what that means, well then, this but is the most glorious thing in your life, the most wonderful thing you've ever heard, the but of hope, hope for the hopeless, help for the helpless, light in the darkness. But God, being rich in mercy, because the great love which he loved us, and we, being dead in trespasses, he, he made us alive in Christ. And how does he do this? How does he make us alive? Well, he defeats death, doesn't he? You see, the Son of God steps down from heaven. He becomes a man, and not just a man, but a little baby boy, poor and helpless like we are, just what we celebrated here at Christmas time. And he grows up and lives a perfect life. He announces the kingdom of God, that God is here and to repent and believe, to turn from your evil ways and follow him. He calls people to love God with all their heart and soul, mind and strength, to love their neighbor as themselves. He heals the sick and he casts out demons. He continually shows humanity the way to God. But since we are dead in our sin, we wanted him dead. And so the son of God suffers a horrific, a horrific death on the cross at the hands of the very creatures that he created. He's buried and the tomb is sealed shut. But on the third day, as Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost, this Jesus God raised up of which we are all witnesses. See, the power of God raised Jesus to new life, defeating the powers of Satan and his demons and defeating the ultimate enemy of God's good world, death. You see, Paul in Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Yes. So Jesus has paid the price for our sin. We deserve judgment. But through the great exchange on the cross, Jesus gets our sin and we get his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might have the righteousness or become the righteousness of God. And so if you believe in Jesus, that he took your sin you change your life to follow him. In return, he gives you right standing before God, therefore making you truly alive forevermore. You will not face everlasting hell, but everlasting life with him forever. So if you're not turned to Jesus today, please realize that you're dead. If you haven't done this, realize you're dead before God and then proceed to give your sin to him. He can handle it. He's the only one who can handle it and he will turn to you. He promises he will turn to you in love. So go from death to life today.
And when you believe this gospel, it allows you now to see Jesus' parables for what they truly are. Once again, Jesus offers us a glimpse, a revelation into true reality, describing time and grace and judgment from God's perspective. And so I'll offer some observations and applications from this now, the parable, for us to consider and possibly implement in our lives. And so the first point here is that the tree as Israel. And so the first thing when you're reading some of the Gospels anywhere in the Bible, maybe the first thing to look at is what did the people at the time, what did they get out of what Jesus was saying? How did it apply to them first before just thinking, what does it apply to me? How does it fix my life? What were the people listening to Jesus thinking about this? And so the fig tree would have represented Israel. Micah chapter 7 verse 1 says this, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no ripe first fig my soul desires. You see, God's people, Israel, was meant, were meant to be a beautiful and bountiful nation, showcasing the glory of God to all the other pagan nations so they would make, come and know him as, their true, as the true creator God of the universe. But as we read, if you read the Old Testament, they just they became just like their pagan neighbours, worshipping false idols and rejecting Yahweh, their God. Micah says they've become like a, a fruit tree or a fig tree with no fruit, right? Hopeless, useless, sad, just worth nothing. Then they're exiled to Babylon for 70 years and they come back by the grace of God and they rebuild the city, but it's not as, they, not as good as it used to be. And then Jesus in this time predicts that they're actually going to be destroyed in AD 70. The temple that they loved so much is going to be destroyed. And so the Jews listening to this story would have known that he's talking about them as a nation. Time is short, they would have thought. Will Israel come back once again and renew themselves like they did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah where they were so happy to hear God's word and they sung and everyone could hear it from outside the city? All the unthinkable happened again and God judges them once more. But as, as all scripture is, this parable is also for here for us today. And so the next heading I have here is the reality and necessity of fruit. The man who owns the vineyard comes specifically looking for fruit, doesn't he? Right? And he doesn't find any. So when Hannah and I moved into Altona Meadows, we lived in a place that had a giant apple tree in the backyard and it was summer when we moved in. So there was, the tree was just full of apples. Like they actually, there were so many that the branch, you know, the branch bends sometimes. There's so many apples on it. And they used to cook in the tree. Like you, sometimes it was so hot, like the front half of the apple was cooked and brown and the back half was still fine. And the ones that all fall on the ground were the same. It was so hot that summer. The ones that were facing up, the front half was literally cooked and stewed. And so my whole backyard smelled like uh, apple cider, which was nice. It smelled pretty good. Uh, we had heaps of apples and there was, you know, made heaps of apple crumble and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'm going to sweet, move to this new place and there's going to be free apples forever. And the next year, nothing. It was like just nothing on the tree, totally gone. And I was like sort of kicking it. I'm like, is this thing broken? Like... Why isn't this working? Like, did I kill it? Is it sick? You know, like you do all your indoor plants, you kill always, your indoor plants always get killed. And um, I was pretty upset. I wanted my apples. And so I did what most people do and, hey, Google, why is my apple tree not got apples on it after last year when I had heaps of apples on it? And I found out that after a bumper crop, um, that it was quite normal to wait one or two years um, to, for the fruit to come again. Kind of the tree has like a bit of a break. And sure enough, um, so I was like, okay, one or two years, that's all right, cool, I can wait that long. 
And sure enough, the next year there was a decent amount, not as much as the previous year, but it was enough to sort of make a few buys and stuff like that. And so it is with human beings made in the image and likeness of God. Just as my fruit tree had one job to do, to make fruit, so it is with us as God's image bearers. We need to bear fruit. God expects us to bear fruit or we'll be chopped down. For us here wondering what the first type of fruit that is expected, hear these words um, as if they were God's words speaking to us now, giving you a chance to produce the first type of fruit needed, repentance. John the Baptist was speaking when he first came out. He was speaking to a group of people, um, to the crowds, but also there was a group of people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who thought they were right with God. But in reality, they weren't. And he says this to them. But think of it maybe as Melburnians living in Melbourne today, coming to church on a Sunday morning. But when he saw many of them, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham for our father, which meant they thought that that's what saved them. So don't presume that you're good enough for God, for I tell you, he's able to produce from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, so people who believe. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And for people, for us here who do follow Jesus, a simple place to go to to see this fruit, if you're bearing it, is Paul's list in Galatians 5. As we said with the kids down the front before, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, Paul warns us also in Galatians 5 that no fruit or bad fruit equals not being in the kingdom of God. Tom Schreiner in his commentary sums it up, going back to the first part of this chapter, executions and accidental deaths are not definitive signs of God's judgment. But if an individual is not bearing fruit, then judgment is certain. And Jesus depicts the vineyard owner as having the same opinion. My next point here is God's grace won't last forever. The owner says to the vine dresser, look, for three now, three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this tree. Fine, and I found none. Just cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? We often hear people talk about, you know, God's grace lasts forever. God's grace is infinite. God's grace is unending. God's grace is unending in the context of how many people he can accept into his new family. Unending amounts of repentant sinners can be a part of God's family. And God's grace is infinite in the context of how big a sin he can forgive. Remember, you can't out-sin the cross. God's grace is big enough to handle the worst of repentant sinners. Just think of the Apostle Paul, who spent his life killing women and children Christians in the early church. But this unending and infinite grace has a timeline and it will one day finish. And so back to my tree. I was happy to wait a year for fruit, maybe two, but if I had to wait three years, there was something wrong with this tree. Three years is a very long time to wait for fruit. And this man in this parable has been exceedingly patient with his tree, but its time is up. Time to chop it down. And did you see why he wants to chop it down? He says, why should it use up the ground? Or in the King James Version, which I like, cut it down. Why cumbereth it in the ground? Oh no, why cumbereth it? Cumbereth it, it the ground. Cool word, eh? I don't think many of us have used that word before, but you might have used the opposite. What's the opposite to it? Unencumbered, means meaning free from burden. 
The reason why the owner wants to cut down the tree is not only due to its lack of fruit, but it cumbereth the ground. It's a burden on the soil. It's draining resources. Marvin Richardson in his book on New Testament words says this, besides being barren in itself, it also injures the soil, injures the soil. Not only is it unfruitful, but it draws away juices from which the vineyard would extract from the earth. It intercepts the sun. If you've got a fig tree, you know how big their leaves are. It's blocking the sun on the grapes and it occupies room. And so I'm assuming here we've all worked or been involved with um, at uni or worked in a project where someone was supposed to do a job and they didn't. When you're part of a team and that person doesn't do any work, right? How bad is it? It's like not only don't they not get their work done, but they drain the resources of the whole group, making everyone else cumbereth, burdened and distracted, overoccupied. Just think of all those, probably bringing back bad memories for uni students here doing group assignments or something like that. I never went to uni, so I don't know how that feels, but I know work ones. But maybe that's been you at one point. We have all here at one point or another, due to our own sin, been a burden to people and to the kingdom of God. You might have been slacking off at work, not pulling your weight at home, or just rocking up to church on a Sunday morning, expecting a nice sermon and some nice music to make you feel better for the rest of the week. But we need to remember this. You do not know which year you are in. You cannot presume to keep living a sinful life of unfruitfulness just because you're in year one. Oh, you might say, I've just started watching bad videos again or whatever. I've got plenty of time to stop that and get back to God and ask for forgiveness. Or maybe it's, oh, I've got this, there's a promotion at work I really need and you know, I know it's going to take all my time and effort for the next however long. I'll, I'm not going to go to church or Bible study. I need to focus on this. I know God forgives me. Maybe you know, when I get this promotion and I've got that thing, then I'll come back to church and I'll come down the front and pray with the people here and say sorry to God and it'll be good. As God says to the rich landowner in Luke 12, fool, your life will be demanded of you this night. Jesus has just explained that tragedy and accidents are a normal part of living in a fallen world. And so think about it. In reality, there are no years one and two. We all continuously live in year three, one tiny moment away from meeting our maker and the judgment of God. Trent Butler in his commentary says this, this parable has a strong note to Jesus' call for repentance. Repentance is not something we put on a list of things to do someday. Time is short. You're you in the midst of a desperate effort to save your soul. Repent now or perish now. God's grace has given you another chance. A last chance. <laughs> last chance for those stuck in sin. That's what you need, don't you? We all need that last chance. And this parable calls it the fourth year. And so my last point here is the fourth year and God's stinky grace. And so after hearing that the owner wants to cut down the tree, the vine dresser says, sir, let it alone this year also, and I'll dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, that's good. But if not, you can cut it down. So a few things to note. The vine dresser pleads on behalf of the tree. All right. Think about it. It's crazy. Like, who would care so much about a little tree, especially a worthless and fruitless tree that's been sitting there for three years doing nothing? Is it really worth another year? I'm sure there's other fig trees in the garden that were producing heaps of fruit, you know, and doing just fine on their own. Why go to so much effort to save this one? You see, the vine dresser is a picture of the love of our God. 
He leaves the 99 to find the one. Every person is important to him. No one is not worth the effort to save. Amen? Amen. This is our God. And so hopefully the Spirit has been um, convicting us of our sin and showing us the reality of our plight before him, before a holy God. And the wrong reaction is to think, I'm just so bad, I'm beyond saving. You know, God could never love me. You don't know what I've done. I better clean myself up before maybe trusting him again and coming to repentance. But again, that's not humility, that's pride. You're relying on yourself to get right with God. So listen to him today. He is willing. He will give you another chance and work with you today to bring you back to fruitfulness. The vine dresser wants to start today. Trust him and let him get to work. As the angel said to Mary, for nothing is impossible with God. So the last bit here, I've got his stinky grace. So a couple of weeks ago, one of Vidal had a birthday party and one of the mums was over and she's a horticulturalist. So if you've been to my place, there's heaps of plants everywhere. And so I've got heaps of questions for her. And I asked her why my roses hadn't flowered. They were just sitting there looking, you know, it's plain. And she's like, have you fertilized? And I'm like, no. I'm like, don't they just grow big and beautiful and, you know, on their own? And she's like, no, they don't. Like you've got to fertilize them um, and look after them. Otherwise, they just go to seed and you just don't get much, you know, enjoyment out of them. You have to put in some work to get the beauty. And I said, what kind of fertilizer? And she's like, oh, you know, the stinky manure works pretty well. Just got to dig it around the roots. And so to reap the beautiful flowers, you need to mix in a lot of stinky manure, I learned. Spend time pruning them. And they look, they look pretty funny and bare after you prune them back. Um, and then just wait for the right time for them, the flowers to blossom. That's hard work. And it's, you know, it can be painful at times. And she said, it definitely smells horrible. And not to let your kids run around the garden bed if there's all poo and manure in there because they'll try and eat it and, you, yeah, make them crook. But as we know, roses can be some of the most beautiful flowers in the world. And this is how God wants to work with us. You see, the vine dresser starts the process by digging around the roots. When God starts a work in your life, he needs to start at the roots. The roots are the things that keep you steady and give you sustenance. God is going to dig around those roots and expose them, showing the sinful roots of our lives. Maybe it's a life that's built on the love of money. Maybe you haven't dealt with something in the past that was painful and you're holding on to it and you can't forgive that person and so you live a life of bitterness without moving on. Maybe your life is built on a love for a particular thing like family or kids and status and jobs. And when someone else gets that thing that you want, you're never truly happy for them because you don't have it. To start producing fruit, God wants to expose these things in our lives. The way to bear fruit, as John Corson says in his book, is to allow God to dig and dung, to expose sin and dispel self. How does this happen practically? Well, it's by beginning each day and every project saying, Lord, I need you. I can't do this on my own ability. My own personality and talents and attributes are just dung. My heart is riddled with sin. I can produce maybe some leaves to impress some people, but not fruit to satisfy you. It's only by your mercy and grace that I'll have anything of substance or pleasure to offer you. So to allow God to expose these things in our life as dung, we're painful, right? To be so humble to admit that you've got nothing to offer him at the start, to get fruit happening on your own, it's painful. But as the saying goes, no pain, no gain. 
If you allow God to do this painful work, this initial painful work, you can trust him that it will produce fruit that God desires and is beautiful. It's going to get messy and stinky. You might have to say sorry to someone who you've hurt. You might have to admit fault to that family member or friend, or you might have to quit that career that's slowly destroying you. But allow God's stinky grace to transform you. You will come out of it, and I promise you'll come out of it looking more like the beautiful Jesus than when you started. And so as I finish up and the band comes up, I'll leave you with a picture of what this looks like. So let me get my little props. So this is what it looks like, a rose looks like when you don't put any effort in, right? Nothing, just some leaves. But, you know, who can blame me, right? I'm a busy guy, I work full time, I've got kids and other commitments going on, um, you know, more, more important. I did put like a note in my calendar every, you know, month to, you know, do some gardening, but stuff comes up and I never go around to it. And so, and then Luke asked me to write a sermon and now I've got an absolute no time to, you know, do anything. And so, yeah, no time. But I'll admit, as I drive down the street, and I see other houses with beautiful roses out the front, I kind of wish mine looked like that. Can you see the connection here? I'm putting off the hard work. I'm making excuses. I wish mine looked like those other roses out there, but I can't get motivated or, you know, to do the hard work to get the results. And this is what it's like when we ignore the Holy Spirit in our lives we put off the work needed to get rid of that sin that's preventing us from looking like Jesus. All we do really is make excuses. We have no one to blame but ourselves if we just have leaves and no fruit or, in my case, flowers. But, right, remember the but of hope. And so I'll bring up this is what it looks like, right, when someone has gone to hard work of digging and dunging, right? Smells like Turkish delight. Right, Roses, their beauty is unmatched. Their scent is what the finest perfumes in the world are based on. Right, All of us here can have lives of beauty and fragrance before God. When we allow God to do the work, he will be completed and he will be in love with the result. A person will be a, the type of person who's submitted to his kind rule and be a person who produces fruit that lasts and gives pleasure to others and to God. So if this rose can be beautiful, you know, here today and tomorrow will probably be, just be dead and on the floor, you know, it'll be petals lying down, right? Imagine how much more beautiful you can be as an image bearer of God. It's hard work, but if you let the Holy Spirit do the work, watch the fruit and flowers blossom in 2024. And so let's spend some time in reflective silence and prayer. Ask God to reveal to you what needs, what maybe needs to happen in your life this year to um, produce some fruit. Um, thank Him if He is producing fruit. I'm not, sure, I don't know what's going into your life, but um, you all know and listen to the Holy Spirit, and then I'll come back and pray, and the band will come up. Dear Lord, we come before you as your people, Lord, and um, we ask that your Holy Spirit may move amongst us, Lord. Help us to listen to you, Lord. For those of us who need to do some hard work and get out there and do some hard work with the roots, Lord, I pray that your Spirit may move in them, give them the encouragement necessary to see the fruit that is at the end of that, the beautifulness that is possible, Lord, that you will bring about, Lord. 
So I pray that for anyone here, Lord. I pray that we'll be a church that continues to um, offer fruit, beautiful fruit by your Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you for this moment. I pray that as we go into 2024, Lord, that this church, this congregation here, can be a beautiful witness to the surrounding area, Lord, um, of your grace and your truth. Um, and we can encourage people to come into your presence, Lord. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.